Welcome to the Flow Performance Edition of Flow Real TV. In this episode three, I introduce you to Austin Einhorn, a professional sports performance coach and trainer, and his athlete, Xander Centenari, a professional tennis player playing on the ATP Tour. In this episode, we talk about the physiology and the psychology of flow states, how to struggle more gracefully, and we even cover the deep mysteries of flow and the universe. Without further ado, enjoy episode three, The State of Flow Performance with Austin Einhorn and Xander Centenari. Hi everybody, this is Tony Flow Real and welcome to Flow Real TV. Coming to you from San Francisco Bay Area, I have the opportunity to introduce you to uh, two awesome guests. Uh, one's a professional coach, the other one is a professional tennis player. The guest on my left is Austin Einhorn, a high performance movement coach, holds titles as a certified strength and conditioning specialist dynamic neuromuscular stabilization exercise trainer. You're one of 20 in the US. Certified micro gait expert and West Coast representative and opto jump advisor for the Houston Rockets and Seattle Seahawks. His mission is to create extremely good environments for his athletes to succeed in. I'm also fortunate to feature Another guest who is one of Austin's elite athletes. His name is Xander Centenary. Xander graduated from Dartmouth in uh, 2013. He was a two-year team captain in tennis. He was selected to the All-Ivy team three times and currently plays on the ATP Tour. Welcome, gentlemen, to Flow Real. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Awesome. So, Austin, one of the uh, biggest things that uh, people are really intrigued when I talk about you is that they're surprised that you're able to accomplish so much at the young age of 28. So I'm 27. You're 27, okay. So all those amazing uh, credentials. Yeah. You're also a three-time All-American athlete who started volleyball specializing pretty late in life at the age of 15, became a uh, junior Olympic gold medalist, and uh, eventually uh, almost won the national championship, gone on to play one year of professional volleyball in Germany, and then after that became a coach. So can you tell us a little more of your like background? How is it that you got to be like where you are now? And uh, what was like that sort of fast track you know, because that's pretty like exceptional to be in your position that you're being offered so many opportunities at such a young age. Um, yeah, I mean, really, I just, as an athlete, tried to be the best I could be and do whatever it was. I was in his shoes, and um, at the time, I didn't 
have the best in educational environment around me to, to know what to do. Um, so after I quit professionally, it was, I anticipated to do that for a few years. I had no idea what I was going to do. And um, through some weak ties, I ended up getting um, a job with some pretty knowledgeable people. And um, it really awakened my eyes to what else is possible out there for the body and what it's capable of. So that same kind of fire and passion I took with my uh, training for athletics, I now take with my education and uh, whatever opportunities come my way. So, you know, I, I try and read at least a few hours every day, try and go as much courses as possible, reach out, learn from people that I um, admire or try and to learn from and, and just build that network of educational individuals. Okay, so was there like a series of events that occurred where you got this opportunity to work for a facility or you mentored with somebody as an apprentice? Um, I think I just had a, a lot of knowledgeable people I was working around, a lot of good physical therapists. Um, Jeff Moreno, one in particular, that opened my eyes to just being more open-minded to things. As an athlete, I was, I was good and I had a little bit of an ego with me and um, over time with my athletic career that chopped down even more and then once I left Athletics, I didn't really have any ego to base anything off of. I was starting fresh. Um, and so he opened my eyes to a lot of new different things. Um, and then once I, I started working with my first professional athlete, his name is Dwight Lowry, he's uh, starting safety for the Colts now. Um, there was one moment where uh, we were testing him with the equipment that I use after one of his first few sessions, or maybe first session. Um, and he just had this like boyish grin on his face because he was he felt how much different he was or how much better he was how much higher he was jumping and the results showed that and so at that point it was just like okay if if i can help a guy who's been in the nfl for about seven years is as strong and as powerful as they come and i can still bring him value and, and um, enhancement to his body then i can i can make it in this field and so um after that it's just been um one after another, and he, he kind of paved the way for me to get more professional athletes. Okay. Um, and I wrote a blog about him that spread and, and people started to read and understand it a little more. Got it. So how did you and Xander connect? It was that again through word of mouth? Weak ties, you know. Weak ties, okay. uh, So um, I know Xander through Steven, and I know Steven through one of my other clients. Uh, who reached out through the internet and just Google searched what DNS is, the one of the methods that I use. Um, and I started working with him and he just thinks it's the bee's knees and he never stops talking about it. <laughs> Almost to the point where it was like doing them a, a disservice because he heard him talk so much. Um, but uh, he, he loved it and it's the same passion and, and that I have about it. And so uh, once he was in, t Steve was in town, uh, he came and saw me and then uh, he talked to Xander, one of his training partners. Um, and uh, then we, here we are today. So you heard about this and you're like, I gotta check this out for yourself? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, you know, I'm always looking to find ways to get better and push the limit. Uh, and particularly physically, uh, I've always kind of had an interest in um, sort of off-court training and. Uh, fitness and health and so um, I talked to my buddy Steve and, and he said hey, listen man there's this guy Austin he's out in 
uh, you know, NorCal, you gotta come check it out. So uh, as soon as I had some free time, uh, I flew out and uh, you know made it made a week of it. In fact, I actually planned to come. Uh, it was I was on my way back from a tournament heading home, so I was like, all right, you know, let me just come for a day or two days and see how much I can get out of it. And within the first hour, I, I thought, wow, I mean, this is this is pretty awesome. I can see this making a real impact for me. And so I was like, you know, I got to stay here for a, a week at least. So I hung around for five days and and just tried to. Um, maximize the time I had here with Austin and uh, Austin wrote up a program for me which I've been doing now for uh, about two months um, and I just came back here a few days ago to okay. put in some more work. So what has been the changes over that period of time since you first started with Austin? Uh, a fair amount of changes I mean even within the first week you know the cool part about this um, Austin's approach as well is that it's very um, there's a lot of, of, of feedback and it's very measurable so the very first day I got here we started with the opto jump um, and measured uh, you know a series of things that Austin can speak on better than I can right but uh, you know vertical jump um, you know balance off one leg um, things of that nature and so we got some baseline numbers essentially, and put in a week of work, you know, hammering some of my weaknesses, um, hammering some of the things that might have been contributing to some small aches and pains that I had, and then by the end of the week we do we retest, you know, and then now you have numbers from beginning of the week, and then you have numbers from you know ten hours of training later okay. to compare, and nearly across the board there was improvement. Uh, along all the numbers, so. Just in a week's time. Just in a week's time. Wow. And then two months later now, you're retesting to see what sort of bigger changes have happened or adaptation? No, yeah, I mean, he just landed from Taiwan, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so but that is the, the, the objective for this time around. Yeah, if we can, yeah, if, we can if we can make the time, yeah. Okay, cool. Tell me more about like your philosophy, your method, Let's use Xander as the case study. Yeah, uh, I mean, with how much I try and learn, it seems like my philosophy is always like ever molding or yeah. slightly getting more and more uh, refined. Um, pretty much I think that there's a very unique way our body is supposed to move and, and on an individual basis that there's not just one magic program for everybody. You know, you pick up your men's fitness and it's this month's issue for everybody to get their athleticism on or six-pack game on you know um, so uh, for me with with DNS uh, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization it's a technique out of Prague that is based on developmental kinesiology how the genetics in our brain form our bones and our movement patterns from the instant we're born to about 13 months and they kind of continue on but it's a very integral period for later athleticism so you know, I've seen a lot of athletes personally who skipped crawling. And it's a very, you know, unique pattern that they exhibit then as an adult and some deficiencies. So to sum it up, my philosophy is like the, the body needs to move a certain way to get maximum co-contraction of all the muscles. Um, and that there's certain patterns that the best athletes in all the world have done uh, that don't get hurt. You know, those videos that you show Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan shooting side by side, they move pretty much identically and they have pretty similar 
um, careers, uh, mostly injury-free except for late with Kobe. Um, you know, Greg Maddox pitched 22 seasons without a shoulder injury, yes. and uh, he illustrates a very specific movement pattern when he throws. And you know, now Tommy John and shoulder problems are an epidemic and synonymous with baseball. And people are saying, oh, baseball is just not a natural movement for the arm. I mean, it might not be natural, but there's an ideal way to do it. Right. Um, and so I'm trying to find that ideal way for each person, <laughs> what they need on an individual basis, um, and just really have no no BS with the programming. I'm not here to get my ego involved uh, or their ego involved with how much weight they can lift. It's it's what do they need to be the best whoever they can be. What does he need to be the best tennis player? What would someone need to be the best football player? Um, and so there's, I think, a lot of unnecessary stuff uh, in this field. So the biggest thing is specificity with the athletes, that they get an individual program based on their weaknesses and strengths. And then you're using technology as well to see what the, the very minute details that are missed by the naked eye. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, how it happens, he walks in and I have a good idea of like what he needs based on watching him walk, squat, do a very, very amount of things. Um, and now that I've kind of always tested my subjective hypothesis with this data, I'm pretty right when I see them walk in, but it gives me more clarity to what they need. So for instance, there's one test um, where it's a single leg jump test five times on each leg. So I'm testing elasticity, power production, how high he can jump, but also um, the neural component of how well can he control that. So it gives me like a bird's eye view of him jumping. And if he's all over the place, then it's like he's driving drunk, right? He's producing a lot of force and, and speed, but he's all over the place. And so um, as the president of Microgate would say, he's, he's driving drunk and I need to sober him up. Right. Um, and it's a very, you know, um, mindful approach, neuromuscular approach with the level of that. So physiologically, Xander, what have you noticed in the last two months, just subjectively without being tested at this moment yet? Yeah, so uh, within the first week, we had pretty quickly a good idea of uh, some of the weaknesses that I had in my movement and um, the way that I was hitting a tennis ball. and. What I noticed, um, particularly within the first few weeks, was uh, better recruitment of bigger muscles in my legs. And so, um, you know, as a tennis player, as a longtime athlete, I have a pretty good sense for uh, my body and how I move. And so, um, after working with Austin for a week and then continuing the exercises on my own, um, I started to notice first in my movement. Um, sort of more uh, explosive, um, quicker movements with almost less effort. I mean, uh, you know, to get specific, I, I had a tendency before to move um, mostly on my toes, which was, and you can jump in here if I'm... You got it. If I'm, if I'm screwing this up, <laughs> but uh, I move often on my toes, which recruits um, mostly my calf and my quad. And so I'm missing a lot of power from glutes and hamstrings. Um, so the, some of the technique things we've, we've done for running and then uh, some of the exercises that I have really focus on um, good positions and good quality movement. So I've, I've noticed a difference in the quality of my movement on the tennis court uh, and more efficient means 
less work and better fitness, you know? So without having to hammer the way that I was moving before and yeah. just try to get- Sounds like you were only using like half your musculature when you're playing off your feet or your toes or totally. the balls of your feet, totally. yeah. Totally. Yeah. So it's like, how can we clean up the movement so that uh, the movement becomes more efficient and you know, my progress moves forward. So that, that's pretty traditional though, at least for me being a former athlete, it's always like beyond the balls of your feet, right? Yeah, and so that's what we face like culturally. It's a big kind of roadblock. And um, uh, another guy that I read, his name is Sean Mishka. He's awesome, um, brilliant, knows more than I could ever imagine. And, um, you know, he talks about who's gonna be the guy who's who's gonna break the chain of events where it's like, well, this is how it's always been done. And so you see um, coaches across the board not wanting to take personal responsibility or be vulnerable that they might be wrong and put their ego aside because they're trying something new and different. Um, even though there's plenty of research out there to support that, they still just, well, I don't wanna ruffle any feathers. I like my cushy pro sports job. You know, this is how it's always been done, so it's safe. Um, and so slowly, I mean, things are changing, but... But that's traditional cultural. in that yeah. cultural, yeah, the sporting world in general. It's just a lot of ego, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. So with you um, having the humility to like wanting to learn and to get better, um, continue with like the rest of what you were saying in terms of what you noticed with your progress. Yeah, certainly. So um, there were sort of, I would say, three major areas with some smaller ones in between. So that first part was more efficient movement uh, in general, you know, the first step moving to the ball. Um, the second thing for me was I came in uh, with not great breathing mechanics. So this is something that you don't hear much talk no about, talks right? about that, yeah. um, And I had an idea before of, of what that meant and I thought that I was a pretty good breather, right? So a good breather means um, someone who is breathing like deep into their diaphragm, filling the lungs completely with air, uh, versus someone who takes more shallow breaths, uh, more of sort of a chest breather. And uh, so the first thing Austin noticed within you know a few minutes of me being there was like, you know, we got some dysfunction in, uh, in his diaphragm and the way that things are moving. So we did some, put some work in with that and um, you know, again, I noticed for me, uh, sort of over time, uh, there, there were some immediate changes, and then uh, I think the more lasting changes started to come over time as I continued to work the exercises. So uh, for me, just being able to t simply take like a full deep breath means that, um, you know, over the course of a tennis match, which is anywhere from an hour and a half to three, four hours, if it's really, a battle you know in hot weather lots of movement you know if you're not maximizing your ability to breathe you got two athletes with uh, you know similar talent similar mindset you've got one that breathes better than the other and that guy is gonna be able to last longer you probably noticed that change like right off the bat that your endurance improved for sure. your ability to focus for okay sure. for sure okay. quick yeah. factoid with that the top 10 tennis players in the world have a better recovery time than the bottom That's, 90. Yeah. And, and what is what causes them to be uh, better recoverers? Uh, who knows, but I know, I mean, it, it could be different for each person, but breathing is a huge component of it. Are they like 
educated were they educated or they just stumbled across that like like just out of luck or something so it, it's kind of a nature versus nurture thing yeah um, where some athletes might have had the right environment in front of them to uh, never have this kind of ideal natural breathing pattern hindered throughout their athletic development um, some like him might have had um, stumbled into the right kind of coach the right research article online I mean there's so many different information avenues out there now that a lot of athletes I think are getting them from different ways um, and and on the opposite end of things some guy might be at the bottom 90 because he read the wrong thing or is with the wrong coach being told to breathe up here and, or whatever else right so that just gets me thinking about the whole psychology aspect of just breathing alone you know and how that's like shifted you to like become more focused during the game you know make less errors and then on top of that the physiological effects that you're getting the benefits so what are some of the psychological things you've been noticing especially since you're like big on psychology yeah yeah i don't know if we have enough time to really get because <laughs> i'm gonna talk about this all day yeah um but this is something that i've interested in, been interested in for a long time as well um and so for me you know the ability simply to just take a better more free breath um, and then also hand in hand with that continuing to practice I mean it sounds strange and you know you hear this sometimes but it never really registers for a lot of people but just simply um, sitting or lying down and practicing good proper breathing uh, can make a huge difference in the way that you compete um, physically like we've been talking about but mentally in the sense that, um, you know, any sort of environment that is competitive involves some um, distraction, involves some, you could call it chaos, you know, whether it's crowd, uh, noise, uh, whether it's sort of the intensity of the moment that you feel that you're sort of projecting on what's going on, uh, the way that you see pressure and the way that you handle pressure. So for a lot of, um, good coaches and good sports psychologists these days uh, and for a long time they talked about using your breath as um, you know the breath is like a common cue among all athletes so they're going to be able to say okay you know when when the moment starts to get intense when you're when you perceive the moment to be more intense what is it that I can go to to keep my body physiologically from getting too ramped up uh, to keep my mind still and not projecting into the future. You know, well, what if this happens? Well, how are people going to see me if I do this? Um, you know, these these uh, thoughts of, of what could happen that hasn't happened, you know, haven't happened yet, can can be devastating. You know, yeah. for for being uh, performing your best in like in key moments in a, in a game or a match. So the breath to get, bring it back to the breath. Um, is a great uh, common cue to be able to say, okay, I notice my mind's wandering forward, bring it back to the breath. You know, and if you put the work in practicing that over time, you know, carving out some time in your training just to simply work on this breathing, notice your breathing, notice when your mind jumps to something potentially in the future or, you know, re going over things that have happened in the past. Can we notice that? say okay and bring it back to the breath so just that skill 
and they call it mindfulness, right? Mindfulness, yeah. That skill of being able to say, my mind is gone, notice, bring it back to the breath. You know, so the breath is like, for a lot of people, the center of um, like a great focal point for them to be. So, since you've been practicing mindfulness, what have you noticed a change in your game? I mean, obviously, like me practicing mindfulness myself, it's always a constant practice, you know, you're always going back and forth, but it is a skill I find that you just get better over time. Yeah. And how has your game improved since you've been like conscious of the actual proper way to breathe and then just keep coming back to center when you're being distracted constantly? Uh, one major thing that's happened is that it, by doing this exercise of mindfulness, breathing, um, is that you increase awareness of the dialogue in your head. Uh, and so, you know, Michael Gervais, who is the sports psychologist for the Seahawks, uh, who I've listened to on different various podcasts and things, uh, he talks about increasing the awareness of the dialogue in your head. And that's important because when you do that, we notice that like, oftentimes the dialogue is not helpful. It's, it's negative. I mean, you yeah. just you know sit and tap into what is going on in your brain and unfortunately um, a lot of times it's not helpful thoughts, not helpful dialogue. So just being able to first increase that awareness, um, notice it and then you know maybe try to make a change. Maybe look into it and say you know well my brain you know my thoughts have gone here but maybe this isn't actually true. Maybe this isn't what it is. Your brain wants to project sort of sometimes the worst case scenario to prepare you, right? Um, and when you're in a competition environment, you know, that's not what you want happening. You want to be as sort of um, still and present as you can be. So for me, I've noticed competing just a, a better awareness of um, what my mind is doing, a better awareness of um, the environment and sort of feedback in the match so that I don't feel like uh, you know, you play a match and next thing you know, you're down three games to love and you're like, well, what just happened? I don't know how, you know, how did I find myself in this hole down three games to love? So, um, just that first, that increase in awareness of what's going on in my head has been really helpful because then I can notice it, bring it back to my breathing and, and really help try to still my mind that way. So what do you think's going on, Austin? Why is our brain wired to talk negative in these especially during these like really uh, pressured situations. I don't even know if I'm qualified to talk about this. Uh, happens like yeah. non-pressure situations. It's a self-preservation technique, I think. Um, and also, I know Brene Brown talks a lot about the culture, like, you know, she's driving and then all of a sudden she thinks about what it would be like to, um, you know, if her car crashed and everybody died. Right, and it's because like so many TV shows and out there, it's like it always projects negative news. It's the popular TV shows like show the goriest scene of events, so we're kind of I think priming ourselves for that. Um, but uh, also, it's just it's very easy for our brain to attach on the negative things than positive things. Um, I forget the exact research out there, um, but. I know it's it's a difficult process to stay positive and, and really I think comes down to something he and I were talking about earlier but just how you perceive the stress so yeah. um, there's uh, some research out there by Lazarus and Folkman about stress and it's really just 
all on one's perception. And so um, there's some event happens. They, he sees he's down 3-0, okay? He then appraises that event and either there's a threat or there's no threat. No threat, no stress. But uh, there's the threat at this point. He doesn't want to lose. And so then after that, there's two pathways. Either it's a um, the perceived ability to cope with that stress. So just that, you know, I'm gonna make it through this, uh, some growth mindset stuff like, hey, me working hard at this is gonna get me better over time. Um, or I don't have the skills and abilities to make it through this or cope through this. And typically people won't have that self-talk that's gonna be victim language. They're gonna be like, oh my God, how bad is this gonna get? Am I gonna just lose? Am I gonna be embarrassed? Or if you wanna throw shoes at me on the court or whatever, you know? Um, and so if you can have that perception or confidence in yourself, self-worth to perceive that you can cope with that threat, then you have a positive stress. Um, and so then I think it comes back to the flow cycle. You have that positive stress that helps go into the release phase and then into flow. Um, and, but also just being able to divert that path from negative stress to positive stress will completely change how your body functions. Right. So positive stress, you get vasodilation, you get more testosterone, um, more adrenaline production, and you burn stored fuel. Uh, all great things. You have this victim language and you think that this is a threat and you're like, oh my God, how bad is this gonna get? You know, it, That should be saved for like bear attacks, plane crashes, things that are completely out of control, stuff's going down. Um, but then you get vasoconstriction, you burn all your stored fuel, you get more cortisol and norepinephrine pr production, so you stay in the struggle phase, um, and it's just all bad. Right, right. But it, the, the beauty of it, I think, the, it's all based on your perception, so we have the complete control to navigate that on our own, but we don't. Yeah, and if you don't mind just adding on to that, um, talking about perception of uh, stress, uh, a lot of that has to do as well uh, again, to quote Dr. Michael Gervais, getting into putting yourself more often in, in um, hostile or chaotic environments, right? So, you know, it's like, okay, well, how, how do we get better at this? Well, first of all, you know, we need to um, develop the skills to cope with stress when it happens. So things like mindfulness is a great tool, um, you know, uh, working on proper breathing, uh, and just acquiring skills in that way. And then it's about testing them out. So putting yourself in a situation where there is some stress involved, there is some threat, and going into it knowing you have the skills to deal with it and sort of pushing your own boundaries and limits. And so the more that we put ourselves in these chaotic environments, the more we become comfortable with that sort of um, outer limit of, of our own boundary. You know, we become comfortable with with new things. So. Seth mentioned that uh, that's considered the challenge skill ratio, right? So you have the, the skill set and then you push yourself outside of your skill set and expose yourself to these challenges and then basically upgrade or, you know, adapt to a higher level of uh, ability to handle that situation. Totally, totally. Okay. And, and going along with that is, you know, when you are pushing limit like that, and where you might be pushing past your own boundary, you know, you have to also have conversation about failure. 
and oftentimes failure is viewed as a bad thing. You know, it's like, you know, are we, um, you know, how did, how did someone do? You, you, you hear all these stories about successful people uh, and the success that they've had in their respective fields, but what you don't necessarily hear about is all of the failures that have led up to that success, right? So you put yourself in a chaotic, hostile environment you push the boundary, you push the limit, maybe pat, you know, slightly past your own capability, and let's say there's some, there's some fear in this you know, new realm you're in, maybe there's some, uh, there's some failure. It's about how are we looking at this, you know, again, it's sort of about perception. Are you looking at this failure as, you know, oh man, like I, I put everything I had, it didn't work out, this is just not for me, right? And, uh, or am I looking at it as, okay, you know, I put in everything I had, I pushed the limit, I was this close, it didn't work out, but this is a great opportunity for me to learn, a great opportunity for me to grow, how can I apply these lessons to the next time I'm in the situation, right? And then the cycle starts again, you go back to work, you work on your skills mentally, physically, skills on the tennis court, wherever else it is, and you again, you put yourself back into a situation like that, and let's see if we can push the boundary again, maybe a little bit further, there's more failure there, right? You learn again, the process repeats. And so next thing you know, you know, you've put in all this work and your boundary is starting to really be pushed further and further. You know, so you're going further and forth, further before there's failure again, right? So it's just all about how you, how you approach and how you see these things. Yeah. So what's been the, uh, the common or the ultimate uh, feeling that you've had now that you're combining like these physical skills that you're learning from Austin as well as the psychology you're also probably learning through him too in your own self-learning and putting those two together what's been sort of the effect that you had noticed um, it almost seems like athletics is almost like a, a perfect um, experiment you know to keep like practicing and finding out what your limits are and uh, seeing what works, what doesn't work. So yeah. what's been the, the thing that you noticed? Totally, I mean, you know, these things are, are easy to, to talk about, but sometimes harder to actually do. And yeah. I think that's why it's important <laughs> to have a team around you, a good team around you, supportive team around you that can help with um, these ideas of being able to embrace failure in a certain way, being able to push your limits, push your boundaries. I mean, it's easy to say, let's find chaotic environments and jump in. <laughs> it's a lot harder to actually do that, right? So yeah. for me, you know, I, I don't have this down. I'm not gonna say that I'm the model to look at. You know, this is, this is something that I'm still exploring and still trying to get much better at. Um, and so, you know, like I said before, it's, Surrounding yourself with people, and particularly coaches, who have this same approach to the process and to improvement and getting better, um, is is really key. Uh, having that supportive foundation because it's it's hard stuff. I mean, it's hard to do. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, so it's it's a work in progress. I think it always will be a work in progress yeah. for me. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely a work in progress right now. So awesome. And so, what about you, Austin, with uh, applying this with the athletes and applying it in your own life? You know, I mean, just like him. Yeah, it's funny. I, I I could talk about it as much as you want, but like me practicing it is still 
still difficult. I mean, maybe I'm being too, we're both being too harsh on ourselves and that we're probably better off than maybe others, but I think we both hold very high expectations for ourselves and so we imagine it to be always better, perpetually better. Um, and so, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that I'm trying to do better. It's just, I need to find the right balance between my own sanity, education, um, how much I want to help my athletes, um, you know, my own, taking care of my own body and stuff. Like, I oftentimes will get sidetracked in to new research, new stuff that I'm reading, and new fun athletes that at the end of the day or at the end of the week, I'm like, I did not take care of myself this week. I ate like crap, I didn't exercise, I didn't do some of the simple stuff, my sleep like fell apart. I mean, I almost can blame my athletes sometimes because I find them <laughs> so interesting and so fun to work with, they keep me up at night. Um, and so it's it's just a, it's a perpetual progress and I've kind of been become addicted to that, that progress. Um, so by no means am I the right exact model, but I'm trying to at least understand it um, as much as I can and live it. Yeah. Um, you know, one analogy I have is there's a video online about, I think it's the Science Every Day guy on YouTube, and some of his like engineering buddies took a bicycle and reversed the steering. So um, if he turns left, the wheel goes right. Super simple change that he, he, knows but he does not understand and so it took him you know like six months to learn how to ride this bike um and so for me it's like i might i might know what to do but if i don't experience it and understand it then i really don't know so knowledge doesn't always equal understanding so um you know my athletes will attest to this as soon as i have a, an athlete in a new sport so like once I started getting tennis players, I started picking up tennis because I didn't feel that I would be authentic enough talking about tennis if I didn't go out there and play and try and do the movements on my own. And it's 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 profound the amount of understanding it takes and how much more timing I, I thought it was than anything else with tennis. And so it really gave me a better frame to how to best train him because I have a better understanding of what that sport needs and so um you know i try and pick up i gotta pick up water polo suit uh i need to learn how to softball pitch mm. it's all the stuff that i want to do and and uh but what i love is it it lateralizes my knowledge and so i can connect more dots yeah that's cool let's talk about some flow stories so xander as you being an athlete what's the one thing that stands out in your mind that was probably where you want to reach uh or go back to you, that same space. Like, what, what, describe to me what a flow state feels like for you. Yeah, um, it's elusive, first of all. Uh, it, it's, um, what's cool about flow is that there's a lot of re recent research about how to better set your conditions to give yourself a better chance you know, to get in the flow, I guess. It used to be the thinking used to be like you know listen this happens once you know like very rarely um, and so it's you know you either you, you're lucky to be in one um, and I think now with some of the research about what exactly characterizes a flow state um, 
you know, there's sort of more of a chance that you can set the conditions correctly to, to jump into one. And so for me, when it does happen, um, it feels like uh, everything is kind of connected, you know, especially with a sport like tennis where timing is really huge and it's kind of a mix of big, powerful movements um, and also sort of the fine, precise movements about striking a tennis ball and the, the small margin of error, you know, um, that you have when you're hitting a ball from one space to a small space on the other side of the court. Um, you know, you, any sort of thinking, overthinking, especially in a competitive environment, um, it is death uh, on a tennis court, you know. <laughs> so how can you get yourself in a situation where, you know, a flow sort of state where things just kind of seem to be happening on their own. You know, you've put all the work in already. You know, over time you're developing these skills, you're fine-tuning things in practice. And then being able to go to a competitive situation and basically kind of shut your mind um, off in a certain sense where things just seem to be happening on their own. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of how I describe best when things are, are working for me, is when I just like, I'm almost just kind of watching from from a slightly outside perspective. You know, I have maybe one or two cues that I'm that I'm thinking about, and it just everything is happening by itself, right? And it's a nice it's a nice feeling when when it's working. So. Is it something that you're aware of in the moment, or like after the fact that you can connect the dots? Um, I, there is some awareness uh, while it's happening, and I think. Um, you know, that goes back a little bit to, to mindfulness as well. It's like, you know, you have an awareness that that things are connected and things are working. And so, you know, the idea on a tennis court is to be able to set the conditions before each point so that, um, you know, you, you approach the point with sort of a, a plan, a clear mind. Um, you, you play the point, you execute or you don't and you get some feedback for how maybe you're gonna change something. And it, these are all like very sort of fine tuning type things. You know, again, it's like things are automatic, but um, you're sort of an observer in, in one sense as well. You have some control of what's going on, but it's just your body is taking over. You, you know, ideally you're training in a way where you're reinforcing. This is where some of the stuff I've been working on with Austin comes into play is if you're training these patterns correctly and getting your brain involved with what the right pattern looks like and then reinforcing that over time, then you get on a tennis court and you want to set the conditions so that happens on its own. Yeah. You know, you don't want to have lots of conscious thought into, you know, what a good stroke is or what the movement is. It should just kind of happen by itself. What about you, Austin? Like, well, to give us a flow story where you obviously not only were you, a, a, you know, a traditional sports athlete growing up, but you got involved in BMX skateboarding or jumping on and off of roofs or stairs, you know? So there's an extreme component that's happening at, for you as well. Um, you know, that, that side of me, the BMX, the extreme sports side of things, uh, it's subsided a little bit after my growth spurt. I learned very quickly the bigger you are, the harder you fall. Um, you know, now pretty much it, I stick to snowboarding. Um, and I don't, 
I want to start pushing myself where I fall a little bit more, but generally it's just a nice vacation and I just have some fun in a new novel environment. Me being in the mountains that high up is, is reward enough. Um, but most of my flow comes from, you know, past sporting events that I've had, like the national championship game that I played in was, you know, the biggest moment of my life and, uh, or biggest of my sporting career. And, um, I view, I remember that more in a third person view. I barely remember it in the first person view. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I mean, it was just an awesome experience. I don't, the time slowed down, but it was just like a different side of me completely. And, um, for me, this is something that I'm looking into is, uh, how much stress is appropriate for each person's flow state. And so one thing you can do through a simple 23andMe genetic testing and then um, upload your DNA results to this company called Athletogen. They give you a sports psychology profile where they talk about if you're a worrier or a warrior. And the worrier sounds bad, but both have pros and cons. But essentially it's about this enzyme called the COMT enzyme and it's how fast your brain reabsorbs dopamine. And so it has to do a lot with how you handle stress. And so the warrior needs four times the amount of dopamine, or they, they do they digest it four times faster than the other person, so they need a little bit more stress just to operate at a normal condition, right? Um, where the other person needs to be calm and more relaxed to operate at a normal condition or ideal condition. So um, for me, most of my flow states came from the bigger, opportunities, the things that I kind of hyped myself up on, stressed out about, and then tiny little bit of release and then the flow. And then for me, like I'm stereotypically the guy when I play against a bad opponent, I play down to their level because it's not the challenge, the skill ratio, but there's plenty of other people who, um, they will seize up when they're in a stressful moment. And so then it comes back to that mindfulness and, and, and growth mindset that they're going to fail a lot. But once they're hitting that you know gold medal stage and all the lights are on them, they will have experienced that moment plenty of times. And once they have that experience, they will actually outperform the warrior. Um, the warrior is good with new circumstances and, and things changing and has good task switching abilities. Whereas the warrior, better memory and, and different, different pros and cons. And so um, for me, I'm trying to stress myself out a little more, have a little more higher consequences, um, for my, my flow type events. Uh, so probably we'll be revisiting a little bit more of the extreme sports side of things. Yeah. Yeah. So where is, uh, is spirituality fall in any of these states that you guys experience? Like, or is it just more or less like, you know, something that just happens and, you know, what is it for you guys? Uh, because you talk about like the third person perspective. So me experiencing flow state, I understand what that is. You almost feel superhuman, nothing can go wrong, but it also feels like the body's just doing its thing and you're watching it like a movie. Totally. Yeah, I think that's, I, you know, for, for different, different people have different takes on it. You know, I, I think that that is a sort of really deep spiritual experience is, is is having um, a moment or a series of moments where uh, you're like completely in the present moment and in a sense kind of embodying like 
uh, your best self on that day. So, um, you know, connecting like very deeply to what you do um, and having a really rich experience in what you do. Um, and, you know, these ideas I think kind of go hand in hand with, with flow. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's really rewarding on like a very deep level. And so for a lot of people, that is a sort of spiritual experience is, is having um, an experience that's just kind of greater than um, the sort of day-to-day -day things that we do. It's just yeah. a really meaningful kind of rich, like vivid type experience where you feel like you're, you're uh, at least for me, you know, completely embodying like who I am at my at my best yeah so about you Austin you know traditionally I don't think I would place myself in the spiritual role but I kind of agree with what he said and maybe some other athletes do but um to be really pushing yourself and, and be on the edge of your abilities um and seeing what you're capable of I think really uh unites you with yourself I would say and you really have more of a deeper connection with yourself. You're like, wow, I am capable of this or, or, or whatnot. Um, and so, I, I don't know, I think I might have a different meaning of spirituality than, than most, but uh, I don't know. It's not something that I yeah. think about day to day. Yes. But I probably experienced something that someone else would call spiritual, I don't know. I just find it fascinating that we're on this spinning planet, you know, spinning in the galaxy and, you know, we can go super deep on that, but it's just the whole physics behind it, like, what what exactly are we, you know, are we are these entities that have this ability to, like, be intelligent, but also, like, what's running this whole thing, which is, like, a big question and, yeah. you know. I don't know how deep you guys get into that in terms of, you know, pondering on that. And especially when you start, like, accessing these, like, high states, you know. I mean, I studied a little bit of, of uh, I mean, I, I had to study physics in school and um, a little bit of uh, astrophysics and space stuff. And, like, my, I, everyone always asks, like, that, that question, the big picture question. And, yeah. Um, you know, he said, well, you just can't ask that question. Like, we don't know. You, you can't ask that question. And so, um, since then, I've just kind of taken it as what it is. I'm not really questioning it, but it's like, well, this is this is my experience. This is my ride. How do I get the most out of it, you know? Um, when you and I were at Esalen, that was a big, big thing for me. It's like, we as, as these intelligent beings are capable of experiencing so many, many things and vast different stimuli. And, and so... Um, that's part of me wanting to pick up different sports is I want to experience all this different things that I'm capable of experiencing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think to add on to that as well, like, you know, these are, these are big questions, obviously, and they've uh, been debated and thought about for a very long time, and people have, you know, great thinkers of the past have different takes on it. And I think, um, you know, one thing that I resonate with is, um, you know, going back to the mindfulness and kind of being present, uh, that's big for me because if you're not mindful and you're not present, you know, the, the opposite of that is um, sort of being on autopilot. You know, it's kind of the dream-like state where um, we wake up and you have a certain routine and you go to work 
uh, you go the same way to work and you're doing the same things at your job and you come home and, and this kind of endless cycle almost lulls us into this kind of dreamlike state. So then, you know, months, weeks, months go by, maybe longer, and it, it doesn't really resonate. And so, um, for me, just like simply tapping in occasionally and taking a moment to like really be present in this moment now, you know, what is going, what is going on now? And in fact, sometimes I literally will like write a note, you know, on my hand and I'll be like, you know, be here now, right? And I think there's some, um, there's some really spiritual quality to that as well because it's the difference between, you know, having a, a, a true experience that you're, um, that you're there and that you're having yourself versus a sort of like, um, almost like you're sleeping. Like it's just uh, the minutes and days and hours go by without you really noticing anything. So that uh, dichotomy between those two things I think is important for people to, um, to at least look into in, in their own lives. I mean, for me it's been, it's a struggle because the, this, the resting state is, is not to be you know, present in this moment. It's kind of to be in that sort of automatic dreamlike state where um, your mind is off doing one thing and you're physically doing another and there's no connection. So you guys are okay with just leaving it as a mystery and not only control basically what you control as yourself and then how you uh, perceive the environment you know, let the environment be as it is, but how you are with that environment is, is pretty much where you're at. Yeah, I think like, say someone tomorrow comes up with the answer of where we came from, that isn't really gonna change my day to day, I would say. I'd be like, okay, that's, I mean, that's good to know and I'm glad to know like, you know, maybe life originated on a different planet and then came here through some comet <laughs> or whatever, you know? Um, that I would satiate some curiosity for me for sure, but it's still like, well, my environment is gonna, isn't gonna change. My consciousness is still mine. How do I be more present and experience it more? How I want to be and just be more authentic to myself and to these experiences. But back to the training aspect. So it seems like it's not so much like this magic pill that is making the biggest change. It's almost like getting back to like how we actually move as human beings and breathe as human beings. And, and yeah. So like our actual bony structures um, are created by the pattern our brain tells our muscles to contract and relax through our development. And that um, when you see like CP, cerebral palsy in, in kids it's it's a brain disorder and we see it manifest in a physical outcome with with their bones and muscles in a certain way more more their bones their muscles are fine but their brain didn't tell their muscles to fire a certain way to pull their muscle their bones into a certain place so um that being said these a lot some of the patterns that i utilize with him and my athletes are structurally the ideal position for that joint to, to be in, um, for the bone to uh, work its best, for the muscles, all the muscles in the joint to play their part, rather than like what you said earlier, just one or two parts of the equation. Um, and so then there's a little bit, you know, traffic both ways is that 
when the body is in these positions where you will start seeing unconscious um, reflexive movement patterns that I'm not telling him to do but still happen because the brain deep down in some genetic level I, I don't understand it quite yet is just like oh yeah I've done this before I, when I was four months old let me help you out with this position and so um, it, it fires these muscle patterns in a sequence of events and, and so it gets him to move better on a genetic level and there's a higher retention to what he does on the tennis court. So it's the difference between like him doing a bicep curl and then not doing anything with his brain or, or anything, it was just the bicep where this stuff um, goes a lot deeper and there's a lot more retention to the sport which is why it, it's such a perfect tool for athletes. What, what do you think is, does that, in your experience, is, is there like a, like a intelligence there that we basically as conscious beings like get in a way of this sort of like perfect template of like how to move or like, is it, what do you think? Is it wired in the brain? Is it like, it, it, is it genetic? Is it further than that? I like, think it's a genetic thing that we just haven't, you know, there's so many genes we haven't found the movement pattern gene yet, but I'm sure something is out there. It's a group of genes. Um, But even though we have all the same genes in here, the environment that we grew up in might play a different role. And so his bones are different than my bones, which are different than your bones, which might change a little bit with how I um, train him, but the, the muscle still supersedes the form of the bone the function supersedes the form. So I'll still be coaching him the same way. I might just go about it differently. And, and um, the governing thing about that, I don't know. You could get into dynamic systems theory, uh, how systems self-organize into these patterns, but I'm not that far yet. Yeah, so it's just running these experiments, finding out like what's getting you the result, what's not getting the result, and how it even works Like it's yeah. still a mystery. Uh, yeah, I mean, how we got there has been a slow process. I'm sure whatever we evolved from monkeys and stuff has a similar process and, and just some, um, you know, mammals are born ready to uh, encounter the earth. You know, I was watching something on Discovery Channel the other day and like one of those mountain billy goats, like they're come out of the world ready to climb mountains. <laughs> we come out of the womb, like very inept at anything. Yeah. All we can do is lie on our back, breathe, eat, and excrete. Um, and then, so, I mean, if we want to get into it, the breathing then focuses on stabilizing our spine for pretty much three months. We don't do anything um, of much importance. And the diaphragm uh, will stretch out and pull the bones down. So the rib cage of a baby. Um, starts at about a quarter to a third of the size of the torso and throughout its development, the breathing, the diaphragm um, pulls the rib cage down to be about a half of our torso. So, um, and then once we're at three months, we start being ready to have different movement patterns to get ready for the world we're gonna live in, but we're, we're wildly unprepared as infants. I mean, the, the processes are in there. The biggest problem is that like, there's all these schools and toys out there to like help your baby learn how to walk. The best thing you could do for your baby is like leave it on the ground and throw some toys all over the room. And let yeah. it figure it out. Let it figure it out. Yeah, it'll, it will. I promise. It might cry a little bit, but 
it's fine. A little adversity and hostile environment is only gonna help it. So you guys ever sit down and talk about like how you can accelerate, like, you know, get into more flow states or based on like you talking about earlier, Xander is like, you know, these things, but to practice it is a whole nother thing. But um, I guess what I'm saying is like, are you close to stumbling across something that like really makes these leaps in, in your performance? The athlete. I mean, I think we're already making some pretty big leaps compared to most other, other training things. Um, how we do it even further. Now, even using like PEDs, performance enhancing drugs, you oh, know. Yeah. It's, you oh, know. Yeah. Well, I mean, most athletes are out there using like not all their musculature and not as efficient as possible. And so like, it's all, it's all within this body. I just had to give them the right cues and exercises to access the rest of the musculature there. And so, you know, within that week there, he put on like almost two inches on a single leg vert um, in five days, you know? And, and it's not, I didn't get him any bigger. I didn't put any more muscle on him. I didn't do anything too special. I just taught him how to time and coordinate and balance his body better. Um, through different methods, you know. There's a lot of other coaches that try and get the same end result that he has gotten and that I try to get, but we just all have different methods. And so yeah. um, there's a few other people out there doing similar things. Most of the other traditional coaches are using like a lot of Olympic lifts or a lot of weight training. And, and it's just simply just changing the movement pattern that can get that big result. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really, I mean, um, like Jamie Wheeler said, like, does it grow corn? And what kind of corn are you trying to grow? Like, just make sure whatever you're doing is actually benefiting what you want to get better at. And um, don't be afraid to be wrong kind of thing. You know, I've had the pleasure of experiencing and seeing a lot of high level workout programs and maybe I don't understand some context behind it, but it's not just, you know, power cleans they're not inherently bad or anything i'm not trying to say that it's it's just some of the stuff is like non-logical it's from like the 1950s and um the research is out there just take 30 seconds on google scholar and you'll find plenty of information to help help create a better program how can people get in touch with you or learn more about what you do oh yeah please do like don't hesitate to contact me you can talk to me on twitter uh at Austin Einhorn, A-U-S-T-I-N-E-I-N-H-O-R-N. -E um, just do that, that'll be the easiest. Um, if you have show notes, I can give you my email. Um, I love to hear from audience, other athletes, answer questions like, big picture, my goal is to change how athletics happen and how people train for sports. And it's gonna take a village and I, I can't just like have this knowledge and opinion and not try and help anybody and everybody. Yeah. Um, so I encourage people to reach out. Uh, I, I really think sports are on a tipping point of if injury epidemic keeps increasing, we're going to go down um, or we're drastically in a shootout. That's cool. And how can people reach you, Xander? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I'm not super active on social media, but uh, I have a Facebook, my name. Uh, it's actually Xander. People call me Xander, X-A-N-D-E-R. 
Uh, my last name is Centenari, C-E-N-T-E-N-A-R-I. Uh, so you can do it that way or um, you know, just send Austin a message uh, yeah. and you can touch me that way as well. Cool. And um, where can they follow you in terms of like, are you on uh, like TV, ESPN or? Um, check out Google basically if you want to see some of my results. Okay, uh, cool. There isn't going to be a ton of uh, televised matches um, for the upcoming tournaments. Uh, but yeah, just you know, Google my name and you'll see some results that way. Where are you, where are you playing next? I'm uh, heading to Toronto, awesome. uh, Canada. So two tournaments there starting uh, next week. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much for being on Flow Real. Oh, yeah. And, uh, appreciate us. it. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> awesome, man. Yeah, that went fast. Yeah, right? Yeah. Flow state. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>